A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. This is the Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people, and we are coming to you live from Sirius XM Studios in New York City. Thank you all so much for being here for this special taping at Sirius XM. Holiday baking season is upon us, so it's the perfect time to turn to today's guest, who's one of the Internet's most beloved baking stars and one of America's foremost dessert evangelists. She's the host of the YouTube channel Dessert Person, the former host of Bon Appetit's Gourmet Makes, and she's the author of two cookbooks, Dessert Person and the brand new What's for Dessert? Simple Recipes for Dessert People. Please welcome Claire Saffitz. So, welcome. Thank you. It's great to see you. You too. Congratulations on the new cookbook. Thank you. Let's just start off by setting up sort of your philosophy on dessert and baking. Yes. You've said that you wrote your first cookbook, Dessert Person, to celebrate and defend your love of desserts. Yes. Why does your love of desserts need defending? So that book came out a couple years ago. And I had come from working in food media for years where I felt like I was around people who kind of turned their nose up at dessert. Like savory got all the love and sweets were just sort of for people who like had lower sort of taste levels in a way. And I was like, that's not fair at all. Dessert is part of the meal. And people that love baking and love sweets, like we should celebrate that. Um, And now, you know, I'm on, my second book just came out. And now it's like, I have so kind of left that behind. It's like, I'm so far in sort of my own, like acceptance of my own tastes that I just am here to celebrate it. Like I don't even, it doesn't even occur to me to defend it anymore in a sense. Well, that seems like progress. Yeah, definitely. What, what changed? I think, I mean, I think a few things changed. I think I sort of became more comfortable with my own like appetites and tastes and style and, um, and judgment around recipes and baking and food. I think I've also created a community of people that are like-minded. And so it's like, I just sort of exist in this space with other dessert people. And like, no one, like we don't have to defend it to each other. Like we're all into it. Right, like we're all on the same page here. Right. Dessert's good. <laughs> right. Um, before, are you telling me that before your first cookbook, before this community, you were, it sounds like you were sort of doubting yourself, doubting your own tastes. Maybe a little bit. I mean, I knew that, dessert was a good thing and that I liked it, but I felt like, oh, do I have sort of like a lesser taste level because I'm so into this thing? But also kind of coincided with my own kind of journey around like intuitive eating and learning to sort of have no judgment around foods. And I say in the introduction to dessert person, like food has no moral weight. So to sort of overall really loosen a lot of my sort of stricter thinking around food and eating generally. And what does it mean to be a dessert person to you today? Yeah, I think 
being a dessert person, like that's how I self-describe, is about embracing food as a fundamental source of pleasure in our lives and a sort of an uncomplicated view of food in a lot of ways. So being a dessert person is, I think, having like an attitude of always saying yes when it comes to food. I can hear already some listeners saying, but, 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 Americans eat too much, um, which I guess like there are valid concerns around health. When people say that, how do you balance these things? Yeah, I mean, I think about as a recipe developer, I always strive to have my desserts taste of the thing that it is and not be overly sweet. So, you know, there should be the right amount of sugar. Dessert should be sweet, but it should be sort of part of an otherwise balanced diet. And I like to practice intuitive eating, which is just kind of about like giving my body what it wants when it wants it. It just all kind of balances out. It's funny to me that um, when we met up in the green room beforehand, you looked in the little mini fridge there and you were like, ooh, they have Diet Coke. <laughs> I'm going to allow myself one of my three Diet Cokes per year. <laughs> well, I drink Diet Coke sometimes, so what's wrong with that, you know? Um, but it's funny to me that you're like, I'll eat all the cake, but I'll only have three Diet yeah, Cokes yeah, yeah. a year. Right. Well, I don't – I'm wary of, um, like, substitutes like – whatever is the fake sugar in Diet Coke, aspartame or whatever it is, I sort of don't do substitutes for like normal ingredients. Right. You know, that said, I do love the taste of Diet Coke. Right. So it's like my, it's something I like have on vacation where it's like, I'm like <laughs> celebrating sort of. Would you, would you like me to get you like a, a cocktail umbrella to stick in your can oh, of Diet Coke? that sounds delightful. <laughs> um, you say that writing this new book taught you more than you imagined possible about the fascinating and delicious realm of sweet flavors that is dessert. What exactly did it teach you that you didn't know before? Yeah. I mean, so Dessert Person was a book all about baking. Like, every recipe is baked. Cakes, cookies, brownies. Pies. pies yeah. Pa a lot of pastry, um, breads. Like, everything was baked. Um, and in this book, only about half of the book is actually baked. Everything else is kind of like stovetop or it's chilled or it's frozen or it's a combination thereof. And I realized, like, generally when I'm baking – the kind of structure of the recipe comes from flour, like in a cake or a cookie or in pastry. And that gives you kind of one, that gives you something. And then in all of these other recipes, the structure comes from eggs, which I thought was really interesting and gives you sort of such a different tool to experiment with, with texture. So it's like you can make something light and moussey. You can make something dense and rich and custardy like a like a pot de creme. So I just sort of realized like, oh, there's this entire sort of other like side of this discipline that I'm really exploring and getting into and, and understanding in a way that I hadn't before because I was so kind of singularly focused on baking, which I love and will always be like my sort of primary love. But I was like, wow, there's so many other fascinating things you can create when you don't use flour sort of as your like primary like scaffolding for your recipe. So Claire, we know that you're well qualified to take baking and cooking questions from our listeners. Later on, we're going to take a live call from a couple struggling with a food-related relationship dispute. <laughs> that one may get a little more complicated. Okay. But let's warm up right oh, now with okay. some voice memos that we got when we put out the call to our listeners. You ready for this? I'm ready. All right, let's hit it. Hi, this is Molly in Orange County, California, and my question is about 
rolling out dough for all those great holiday baked goods. It seems like I'm constitutionally incapable of rolling out dough to a specified shape. So if I'm supposed to be rolling out a round for pie dough, it comes out as a pie dough amoeba. And if I'm supposed to be rolling a yeasted dough out to a rectangle for cinnamon rolls, it comes out as cinnamon amoeba. Do you have any <laughs> advice so that I can break the dough amoeba cycle? <laughs> so generally, whatever shape your dough is in, before you chill it or you let it rise, that is the shape it's going to want to be. So when you're making a dough, whether it's pastry or a bread dough, you have this kind of network of gluten. And it's sort of organized in a particular way. So I would say try to really form your dough into like a nice sort of even shape before you chill it. If you're trying to roll out something round, often it helps to like keep the dough moving on the surface. So, I mean, and that will help you anyway, just to prevent sticking. So I like to kind of like constantly rotate the dough. I don't give it more than really two passes with the rolling pin before I rotate it. So kind of constantly rolling over like a different area of the dough will also help you work it out evenly. And as far as rolling into a rectangle, I think that can be tricky when you're working with like a yeasted dough. Um, and so it's very common to get like rounded sides or corners and that kind of thing. So what I like to do is just sort of like tug at the four corners. You can kind of like make fake corners of your dough basically when you roll it out. Um, but just know that it takes practice. Right. That's one that I struggle with. When I, I mean, I'm not a huge baker, but when I roll dough, it's a mess. <laughs> I can't get it to go in the right direction. I, this has been very helpful to me. I mean, one thing with dough is like, if it's fighting you, just let it rest. That's like the dough just needs to like chill out for a minute. Sometimes literally. Right. So, so you know? basically like slam my rolling pin down and be like, I'm going for a walk. Yeah. Walk away. Right. Okay. All right. Got it. <laughs> All right. Next one. Hi, Sporkful team and Claire. My name is Heather and I'm from Dublin, Pennsylvania. Obviously, it's preferable to try to bake something at the correct time and temperature specified in the recipe. Sometimes this just can't be accomplished, and the baked item has to be baked with other items at a different temperature than the recipe originally called for. What are the best and worst items to adjust the temperature for? Thanks. So what Heather's saying is she's putting multiple things in the oven at once. The recipes call for di different times and temps. And she knows that may not be ideal, but look, this is this is real world, okay? Sometimes this happens. Right. What are the types of desserts that give you a little bit of flexibility versus the ones that, like, have to be just so? The main issue with baking multiple things in the oven at the same time is that they're kind of, like, pulling from the same heat source. And so it, they tend to, like, bake more slowly and then um, – like the rise sort of isn't happening as it should because like this other thing is in the oven, like pulling heat away from from this other thing that you're trying to bake. So things like cakes, brownies, bar cookies, um, those tend to be okay if you are putting them in the oven with something else. But you don't want to be like 75, even 50 degrees off of the actual temp. 25 direct degrees in either direction is probably okay. But if you can, it's actually best to – if you can stagger when you're putting them in the oven, that's better. Like if you can avoid putting a cookie sheet and a cake pan in the oven at the same time, maybe like the cake's almost done and then you put the cookies in because then that cake is already up to temperature in a sense. Just really rely heavily on the doneness indicators because the time 
if you're putting it in with something in the oven and not at the temperature in the recipe, then the timing that the recipe gives is going to be totally irrelevant. Another thing we can tell Heather is that she should pick up your new dessert cookbook, which has many stovetop desserts. <laughs> yes. Right? Free, yeah, free up the oven. Free up the oven. Make a stovetop dessert. She should make there buttons that say, like, free up the oven. <laughs> free the something. oven. Yeah, <laughs> free the oven. Yeah. All right, we have another voice memo. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Kevin. And we're calling in from Sunnyvale, California. So a few weeks ago, I was making pumpkin muffins and Kevin walked by and asked if I was going to frost them. I told him, of course not. I'm making pumpkin muffins, not pumpkin cupcakes. To me, the main distinguishing factor between muffins and cupcakes is whether they're frosted. You can have a banana muffin, but once you frost it, it becomes a banana cupcake. But I completely disagree. I think that the batter, not the toppings, differentiates muffins from cupcakes. Have you ever had a poppy seed cupcake? No, because they're never frosted. <laughs> Have you ever had a vanilla muffin? No, because the flavor of the batter helps determine muffins from cupcakes. The other element is the ratio of ingredients in the batter, which leads cupcakes to be sweeter and fluffier than muffins. Have you ever had a chocolate chip muffin from Dunkin'? It's so sweet and fluffy, but definitely a muffin. We're at quite the impasse here, Dan. Please help us out. <laughs> All right, Claire, uh, how do you rule here? What's the difference between muffins and cupcakes? So there are a couple distinguishing features between muffins and cupcakes. So cupcakes are obviously cake. There is something called the muffin method when you're, when you're making muffins. And it's basically you're combining wet and dry, and that's it. So often, like, your fat is oil or it's melted and it's mixed with sour cream or yogurt or buttermilk or whatever it is. And then you have your dry ingredients, and you just fold them together and you put them in the muffin liners and you bake it. Now, a cake, on the other hand, is typically starts with creaming together the butter and sugar, so you're working more air into the batter, and so you, you are getting this kind of fluffier texture. So, so that's kind of a technical difference, and I do understand the idea that, like, you know, you're not generally having a, like, a flax cake. You know, you might have, like, a flax muffin or something right. or a bran muffin. You're not having a bran cake. But I think— Not unless you're really fun. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know anyone who's having that. Um, but I do think that when it comes to, like, bakeries or, like, stores, when you're buying a muffin, there is so much sugar in them that there's no functional difference. Like, there's a technical difference, but I don't think there's a functional difference. And, and of the muffins that are being sold in bakeries and coffee shops, how many do you think are actually made using this muffin method? Well, it's so easy. I'm guessing probably quite a few. But Does I, it have to have frosting to be a cupcake? I think yes. I agree that it has to have frosting to be a cupcake, but I disagree with Kevin's idea that, like, the flavor base is part of it. Because, like, you can have a blueberry muffin and a blueberry cake. Right. So that destroys that part of his argument. But I think part of this and what you're kind of getting to is that there's a larger societal problem here, which is the cakeification of muffins. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And that is upsetting to me because, like, a muffin shouldn't be, like, this grapefruit-sized ball of sugar. <laughs> right. It's supposed to be, like, a mild baked good that you might actually have in the morning and not feel like garbage afterwards. Right, right. Um, and I understand bakeries that are, like, loading up their muffins with sugar because it's a preservative. So it's, like, keeping it moist and, you know, so it's not drying out in the pastry case. So I understand that. But muffin, muffin is cake. I believe that muffin is cake, mostly. <laughs> So uh, as part of this debate, uh, Hannah says, have you ever had a chocolate chip muffin from Dunkin'? They're so sweet and fluffy, but definitely a muffin. So Claire. Oh, oh no. We got a chocolate oh, chip muffin from Dunkin'. Oh no. There's a little homemade sound effect for you. <laughs> Let's have a piece of this chocolate chip muffin from Dunkin'. Okay. And just, we're, we're going we're gonna to judge. 
is this a muffin? Is this cake? What is it? Okay. You mind if I do the honors here? Please. I'm going to peel the paper off with my fingers. This, right. is, this is a quite a large muffin. Just pick, pick any piece you want. You can okay. just say, take a piece. I already know what I think you of this. You took a bottom and not a top? Yeah. <laughs> because Record scratch. <laughs> <laughs> because I want to taste what the, I want to taste the interior. I, I don't want to have a false impre- impression of the top because the top has sugar on it. Okay. And it's going to be like really good and crunchy. All right. Fair enough. When you took that piece, you said, I already know what I think of this muffin. Yeah. Which is what? I already think it's cake. <laughs> based on how it on, feels? Yeah, based on how it feels. Mm. It tastes like cake. Not saying that's bad, but I just think if you're cake, you should say that you're cake. And not that you're a muffin. Right. Because it, ha- it does have like a bit of a health halo, but there is nothing. I mean, this is just cake. Wait, this is so funny. I'm washing down my Dunkin' chocolate chip muffin with my Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Claire, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have more listener questions. I'll subject you to a lightning round. And we'll take a live call from a couple with a food-related dispute. We'll see if we can help them out. Sound good? Sounds great. All right, stick around. Hope you're hungry because it's time for some ads. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. For the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman, and we are live at Sirius XM Studios in New York City. Now, I'm sure as you listen to this episode, you're hearing how fun it is to be able to send in a voice memo to The Sporkful and hear yourself on our show, right? Well, you have another chance to do it right now. It's time for your New Year's food resolutions. This is our annual tradition. Record a voice memo with your name and location and tell me what food do you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why? Send it to us at hello at sporkful.com. We might just feature it on our last show of the year. Again, hello at sporkful.com. Now I'm joined once again by Claire Saffitz, whose new cookbook is What's for Dessert? Simple Recipes for Dessert People. Hello again, Claire. Hello. Claire, what food do you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why? 
this is very specific. I feel like I'm going to eat more cabbage in the new year. I think it helps like we have a long winter in New York and like it's a great winter vegetable and it's so versatile. And every time I eat it, I'm like, why don't I eat more of this? And I was just thinking about it the other day because I really am obsessed with cabbage wear. You know, like the plates and bowls and stuff that's like looks like cabbage. Look like cabbage? Yeah. I, I, cabbage wear. That's cabbage a, wear. That's a thing. Is that related to cottage core? Yeah, it's, that- it's probably not unrelated to, <laughs> co- to cottage core. Um, I, I, I mean, this is a this is a brand extension for you, Claire. <laughs> cabbage wear by Claire Saffitz. Oh, I would love it. Yes. <laughs> All right. That's a good one. We're going to open the phone lines and try to help some listeners having a food-related relationship issue. But before we get to that, Claire, I want to talk about the role of food in your relationship with your husband, Harris. So Harris is Harris Mayer Selinger, who's the chef owner of Cream Line and Chelsea Market, right? Mm -hmm. Serves amazing burgers, fries, shakes, grilled cheese and tomato soup. How would you characterize your respective cooking roles at home? I think that we make it work by very clear division of labor. If at any time we're making something, one person is in charge. And that the other person takes their cues from them. And often we're in the kitchen at different times. So it's like, he'll make dinner. I'm not involved. I show up and eat and clean up, you know, or it's the other way around, although he never really cleans up. (laughs) I'm pretty much always cleaning up. And often we'll, we'll, I'll say like, I'll make the salad, you make this. It works really well. And I will say that he has, especially in the years that I've been writing these books, like taken over a lot of the kind of just like household cooking because A, he's really good at it. And B, I'm busy with like all the recipe testing. Why doesn't he help more with the dishes? <laughs> oh my God. You just ask him. I, 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 not, I, great question. Is, is, he's going to be so mad at me. That I this. He's going to be like, I do the dishes. But like sometimes I think, and I will admit to being guilty of this sometimes, like I load the dishwasher because I have very specific ideas about how it should be loaded. Mm-hmm. And so, and like, my wife drives. When our family's driving anywhere, she drives because she's an excellent driver, and she has very strong opinions about how the car should be operated. Uh-huh. Sometimes, like, some people just care more about certain things yes. than other people. And that, and to be fair, that is me. I am you with the dishwasher. Right. So I get that. But I also think it's like he cooked in restaurants for so many years and never really cooked at home that he only has one way of cooking and that is as a professional chef. I mean, he's no longer cooking professionally. He's in restaurant operations, but he cooks like he would in a restaurant, you know, like multiple pans and high heat. And I'm just like, this is crazy. Like you, like this is, you cook like a maniac. (laughs) So it is, sometimes I am just like, you need to go. Like I'll just, I'll take care of it. And you typically end every meal, as you say in the intro to the book, by asking what's for dessert. Mm Mm-hmm. Who takes the lead on dessert? I mean, the what's for dessert is is in many ways kind of rhetorical because sometimes it will be like very obvious. We'll have something like out on the countertop that I made or cookies in the freezer or that kind of thing or just or ice cream is like a go to. But sometimes we really don't have dessert. And then I'm like, I short circuit a little bit and I'm like, I need you to figure this out for me. And so Harris is really good at kind of like MacGyvering dessert sometimes. It's like we have graham crackers and we have some Nutella and we have heavy cream or something. So it's like he kind of puts something together and then I'm like the the relief, the what washes over me and, <laughs> and, um, and I'm able to enjoy it. The so, dessert panic recedes. Yes. So Claire, I think we have a good sense of the role that food plays in your own relationship. Let's see if we can help out another couple. Okay. All right. It's time to go to the phones. Hi, who's this? Hi, this is Emma. And this is Connor. And we're from Manchester, England. Emma and Connor say hello to my friend Claire Saffitz. 
Oh my God. Hi, class office. Hi, Hi class office. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. What can we help you with today? Um, so essentially we're both really into food. We're, we're a couple who enjoys food and we eat out all the time together. Um, but we've got a little bit of a foodie disconnect. Um, and I was wondering how best we could meet in the middle. I'm somebody who really likes to be a foodie all the time. I take a lot of pride in like knowing what I'm craving, like going the extra mile to to satisfy what I want. And just to know that I'm getting like the best thing possible, breakfast, lunch and dinner. And we can get a bit tense in certain situations when I'm being maybe too specific uh, or like if something is a bit of a stressful situation, but I'm trying to prioritize food or if Connor makes a suggestion and I just think that's absolutely abominable. Why would you even suggest that? <laughs> um, so in short, like I am team um, breakfast, lunch and dinner, nothing less than the best. So I'm very happy to indulge Emma, but sometimes I think I'd prefer a bit of an easier option. I think sometimes we end up going into the classic debate of, well, what do you want for dinner? Oh, I don't know, but it better be delicious times <laughs> like a million. Um, and I need to say that in a practical sense, if Emma wants something specific, it's often me going to the shop to source these various marvellous ingredients, sometimes missing out on things like extra hungover time in bed, say, for example, if Emma develops this <laughs> craving for cantaloupe melon and and salted pretzel bites that that's the key one at the moment sometimes i need to make my meals quicker uh, because i have a bit of a busy job and god forbid we end up on a long road trip together because whichever service station we stop in will depend on a very particular set of planets and vendors aligning <laughs> Uh, I am team, if everything's special, then nothing's special. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a, okay, that's an interesting philosophical idea. So, so, but just to understand, Connor, when Emma insists upon eating something very specific, at the end, end of the day, like, is it usually delicious? Oh, always. Every <laughs> single time. Well, that's and, and it's, a big point in Emma's yeah. favor. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Connor, you're the primary cook, is that correct? No, em, Emma, Emma knocks it out of the park every time. I'm a very functional cook in the same way a goblin might cook, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> By killing people and boiling them in giant cauldrons? Um, more, more taking last night's pasta bake out of the fridge and putting it on a fajita wrap, maybe with a bit of chili right. uh, in between meetings. <laughs> My husband is someone who has very specific cravings. So I'll say to him, <laughs> what do you feel like for dinner? And I'm expecting an answer that's something like, oh, maybe maybe Japanese or, you know, I feel like having fish or that kind of thing. And he'll be like, okay, I want chicken parm with a side of like broccoli rob. And it's like so specific. And I'm like, that's yep. like, okay, like that's. I wasn't asking for like the actual thing you wanted to eat. Right. It was more of just like, what's your feeling? Emma, tell me if this sounds like it's sort of describes you. Do you feel like you are always trying to optimize your food experience? Is that part of it? Yes, completely. Like it, like exactly what you just said with your, with your other half. Like if, if I've got a very specific craving, I'm like, if there's like a disconnect, I don't know. It just ruins my whole 
it doesn't ruin my day. That's very dramatic, but it ruins a portion <laughs> of my day. You sound like you're someone who's very kind of attuned to your needs and feelings and kind of fluctuations in, in both. So I understand that, but I also understand sometimes it could be like, Connor, does it feel like there's a lot of pressure to deliver on these desires or it like will sort of cast a sort of gloomy shadow or that kind of thing? <laughs> um, sometimes it, it, it does feel like... Um, what investment am I putting in for the preference when maybe I've got work to do and I simply don't have time for what is bound to be a magnum opus and why can't we just have macaroni and cheese? Um, how long have the two of you been together? Eight years. And how long have you, you lived together? Um, six. Okay, and are you married? We're engaged. Okay, and do I understand correctly you're about to be like traveling together for an extended period of time? Yes, so we're taking a gap year next year. And um, so another one of the big places that we do have these like little, fall, not little fallouts, but like bits of tension is, is travel and being away. And like, basically when I'm at home, I've, I've got my home comforts. I know what's available to me, what's, what's round the corner and I can get what I want when I want it. So tips on maybe not amplifying these feelings when I go away and I feel like I'm not missing out on anything or not putting Connor in a situation where if I don't get the food that I want, he takes the brunt of it on like a 12 hour sleeper train from Bangkok to God knows where. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts here, Claire? How, what do you recommend? I, as a former like food optimizer all the time, I did notice like an indirect correlation between sort of like my, the hopes that I pinned on a meal and my enjoyment of it. And I actually think that I started to enjoy food a lot more when I wasn't trying to optimize so much every meal that I had. I think what you're getting at, Claire, is that the more uh, emotional buildup there is to a meal, the the more Mm -hmm. likely it is that you're going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I do, I identify with Emma a little bit because I certainly am someone who like, I don't, it upsets me when I waste a meal, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, when I'm, when I'm rushing around and I have to eat something like depraved, like a hard boiled egg from some crappy corner store. Cause I just need <laughs> protein and I'm starving or like a, you know, just something. It's like that, that could have been something delicious if I had planned my day a little bit better. But at the same time, like you just can't live life with uh, that much riding every meal. You're going to make yourself miserable. My advice to you is pick one meal a day. Ooh. Pick one oh, meal my. a day. That's going to be your special meal. Okay. And the rest, you got to like let it go a little bit. I think Dan's idea is great. Like maybe it's dinner. Maybe it's a time that you can spend together. And that can be sort of where you plan and decide and and really are thoughtful about what you're craving. And then in the other meals, I think just building in a little bit of flexibility of like maybe it's not the one thing you had, but I think leaving a little bit room to enjoy other other dishes or other foods that maybe aren't the one you have in mind. I think that's going to be really helpful when you travel because the most enjoyable travel experiences can be when you kind of discover something that you hadn't planned. And I have definitely been traveling where I'm like, okay, we have to go to these five places that I have like on my Google map because I read about them beforehand. And and it becomes, it can be a slog a little bit. Like you're just sort of checking boxes to check the boxes, you know? Right, right. You, you get so focused on like checking everything off your to-do list it becomes more about that than just about like enjoying yourself, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I, love, I love that advice. I knew this was a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Emma and Connor, uh, good luck on your travels and we hope that you manage to find uh, deliciousness without too much stress. Thank, oh, you, so thank much. you so much. Take care. Bye. 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 
Mm. All right, I think we did some good work there, Claire. (laughs) Are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Snacking cake. This is something I hear about. I think it was like a whole cookbook. I see Mm -hmm. it on Instagram a a lot. Aren't all cakes snacking cakes? I don't know. I don't think a layer cake is a snacking cake. I think a snacking cake is something very specific, actually. Really? Yeah. You don't ever have a layer cake for a snack? No. Do you eat layer cake as a snack? Like a birthday cake? Hell yeah. Oh, interesting. (laughs) I've ordered my own birthday cake and just eaten it like by myself (laughs) over the course of two weeks. I mean, everyone can have their own personal definition of what is a snacking cake, (laughs) but that's not what I think of. I think of like a loaf cake or a single layer cake, something that can kind of sit out on your counter is like not too sweet. Maybe it has frosting, but it's not like an elaborate layer cake. It just feels like a simpler thing. But it might not have frosting at all. It might not have frosting at all. You know what that sounds like? Then it's like, is it a right a muffin? A muffin. No, yeah. well, no. <laughs> not if it's in a loaf. Okay, all right, all right. So a loaf-shaped muffin is a snacking cake. But it could have, but like, I want, it should have like glaze on it. Okay. And it should have something on it. Okay. You've said bread is your favorite food. Mm-hmm. You've also said whipped cream is your favorite food. Uh-huh. Claire, this is a direct contradiction. <laughs> Take a side. There should be like 10 more things on that list because I say, I say this a lot about a lot so of So Desert things. Island, you got to pick one. Okay, it's bread, but it's bread and butter. Okay. You can't live off of whipped cream. That's mostly <laughs> I mean, air. Yeah. Uh, bread, bread and butter, okay. like good bread and butter. I've heard you say that one of your favorite dessert genres is caramel flavored desserts. And uh-huh. I'm that way too. My favorite desserts are the more buttery, like butterscotch, caramel, yep. toffee. I feel like chocolate people... Are there's a certain personality profile, a certain machismo mm-hmm. of these chocolate people who are like, I'm a chocolate person. Like yeah. they self-identify. And yeah. then they're like, there's no point in dessert if it's not chocolate. Right. Show me the menu. Where's the chocolate? <laughs> What's the deal with those people? And uh, should we caramel people be uh, self-identifying more loud and proud? Oh, this is part of the lightning round? This is, doesn't feel like a lightning round question. Um, this is like a, this, is a, this, this requires is a lengthy response. All right, all right, go on. Um, the chocolate dessert person is a real category of dessert people. And it also tends to be the people who are like, the darker, the better, you know, like cacao, like super bitter, right. which is sort of not my um, preference. Uh, and it's like, also kind of like maximalist, like the more like, Chocolate on chocolate on chocolate, which right. is sort of also not my thing. But also chocolate and caramel is such a great combination. And I am someone, I'm pretty particular about what I combine with chocolate, but caramel is like on the short list of things that I like to eat with chocolate. So I think the chocolate dessert people and the caramel dessert people should like find common ground. Also, like I'm just also just a fruit dessert person. Right. And I don't really do fruit and chocolate together. That's kind of a particular quirk of mine. All right, Claire, since we're here in front of a live audience, we're going to take a couple questions from our audience members. If anyone has a question... Go on. Yes, sir. Step right up. Please please tell us your name and where you're from before you uh, start your question. Hi. I'm Jay from Hoboken, New Jersey. Hey, Jay. Thank welcome. You. Thank you so much. When I go to a bakery, um, one of the if, if they have it, I'm going to order a chocolate chip cookie. That's going to be my judge on if this is a good bakery for me to go back to. Is there a specific food that you would get at a bakery that that's your judge? Oh, I like this question. Yeah, great question. I agree with you that chocolate chip cookie is a great benchmark. For me, it's also a croissant. What is the texture? Does it have that shattering exterior and like silky soft interior? You know, when you pull it apart, like how does it kind of, that, to me, croissant is also a great uh, benchmark. I think it, like, like for me, like if I'm trying out a new pizzeria that's supposed to be very good, I will always get a margarita. Right. And I think that, so the, the universal theme, whether it's chocolate chip cookie or croissant or margarita, is that like if you're trying to really evaluate a place 
get the basics for right. like if they're do if they're good at what they do, they'll be able they should be nailing the basics. Exactly. Agreed. We have one more question. All right, step right up. <laughs> I'm Karen from Stony Brook. And um my niece's stepmom makes the best, like really good oatmeal cookies, and she will not give the recipe to anyone. <laughs> so I got a few of the cookies. And they're like in my freezer and I cut them in quarters so I could, how do you, how do you approach trying to duplicate a recipe? Yeah. So I have a theory about people that won't give out their recipes, which is that it's like a recipe on the Quaker Oats box or something, you know, like that's my, that's my theory is that like the like secret recipes are like just, like right. they don't want to tell you that it's the recipe it's on like the Quaker mix. Right, or right, or it's yeah, a mixture, yeah, right. yeah. In other words, it's, it's actually nothing special. <laughs> right, so, so that, check like, the Quaker Oats box. Yeah, right, right. But, you know, it's it's specific to the recipe. So for cookies, it has sort of its own answer because every single ingredient in cookies has a, a particular function and affects the outcome of mostly texture. So if it's like a chewy oat cookie, I'm going to say it's like there's probably – Probably a mix of white sugar and brown sugar, but like possibly a little bit more brown sugar. Um, brown sugar makes it chewier. Yes. Typically with cookies, like a higher proportion of white sugar gives you crispiness. More brown sugar will give you chewiness because of like the, the kind of molasses content. So brown sugar makes it better. Yes, yes, okay, yes. If you're, yes, I lo- I prefer a chili <laughs> cookie, so yeah. Um, and then the spread of the cookie, are they like very thin or do they kind of stay they thicker? Very thin and they were super chewy. Hmm. Really. So probably also a pretty high proportion of butter. When you hold them, I know that they're cold, but once when they're room temperature, do you get any like little butter residue on your fingertips or anything like that? Probably. I'm going to have to go Okay. Probably, yeah. yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Try another quarter when you yeah. get home. So they're probably, the spread is probably about the butter content, that they're like very buttery. So it has maybe a slightly higher amount of butter. I really would start with the Quaker Oats recipe and then, but like make those changes. But like I'm going to add two additional tablespoons of butter. I'm going to, you know, switch the proportion of, you know, I'll, I'll use some, instead of white sugar, I'll, you know, add some brown sugar and start there and see where you get. If you start with like a pretty tried and true recipe and your family doesn't mind having a ton of, you know, oatmeal cookies around, then I could be like lifelong. You could just be like forever tweaking it, you know, and because you're never going to have something that you don't want to eat in the end. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all the time that we have. Listeners at home who are kind of like, oh, th- there was a live Sporkful taping. We didn't hear about the tickets. That's because this this was open exclusively to people who subscribe to the Sporkful email newsletter, the most hardcore fans. So if you're not already on that list, get on it already, people. There's going to be always more cool stuff that we're giving out through the mailing list at uh, sporkful.com slash newsletter. Claire Saffitz, host of the YouTube channel Dessert Person, and she's the author of the new cookbook, What's for Dessert? Simple Recipes for Dessert People. It's out now. Big hand for Claire Saffitz. <laughs> and keep the applause going for everyone who worked on the show at Sirius XM. The Sportful is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our editor is Tracy Samuels, and our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sportful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Eric Eddings. Now I'm going to need your help on the end here. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman reminding you to... Eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you for coming. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. 
for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois.